Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. In this episode, you'll meet Iraq War veteran and National Book Award-winning author Phil Clay. He discusses his new book of essays titled Uncertain Ground about the impact of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq on American society and the chasm between the less than 1% of citizens who serve in the military and the rest of the nation. He also talks about the withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan, the mass shootings in Buffalo and Uvalde, Texas, and other issues. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Phil Clay, author of Uncertain Ground. This is your third book, and it's a collection of essays. So tell me about this project. So I got out of the Marine Corps in 2009. And in many ways, how we waged war and the political debate about war was very different back then. And very soon I started writing about the wars. I wrote about them in fiction, but also in nonfiction. And at first I thought that my job was to kind of make sense of the past, make sense of what I had been through, the time that I was in Iraq, which was a kind of momentous time. It was the surge, which was, you know, hotly debated. There was a, you know, kind of a major testimony before Congress when General Petraeus came in September during the year that I was in Iraq and and, and Ambassador Ryan Crocker. And there was uh, a real and aggressive debate about military strategy, about whether it was working, about what we were doing there, whether it was sustainable. And... So I thought that sort of, you know, that was an important time and looking back on that would be a significant portion of uh, of what I was doing as a writer. But the wars kept going on and the way that we waged war changed. And so as I had this sort of very basic experience that I think a lot of veterans have, which is, you know, there's this experience you had in war that was deeply important, right, and complex in many ways. And then there's a society that uh, sent you over there, right, that you're going back to and reintegrating into. And, you know, how do you make sense of what happened overseas and how do you make sense of the society at home? Because it looks very different when you can, you know, come back from war. That process was in many ways a strange process because people I know kept going overseas. Sometimes they were shot or blown up and um, killed. And, and so grappling with what it meant to be a citizen, right, in relationship to our wars became a really urgent moral question for me. And this book is my attempt to sort of work through both sides of that coin. The, the, the challenges that I see and the difficulties I see and my, my, my concerns about the direction of American wars, and also my concern about how that relates to America, what it says about American citizenship, 
wars have always been bound up with a sense of American identity, and they touch so many aspects of American life, from our relationship to, to firearms to uh, our relationship to immigration debates. And so the essays go through history, they go through the present day, um, and they're also concerned with, I guess, what you would say, the more sort of philosophical and moral and spiritual questions that service and more bring about. Why did you decide on the title Uncertain Ground? <laughs> well, it, in many ways, I actually think uh, <laughs> it, it's, it's a somewhat foreboding title. And yet at the same time, my approach when I go in to write an essay is even if I'm extremely morally exercised about something, right, is that I never want to feel as if I'm some pontificating authority who has worked this out. I'm making arguments in the book, but I'm also hopefully inviting readers in with me to navigate what is, I think, very uncertain territory, um, territory filled with a lot of doubts as we try and figure out the uh, the ways that we should go forward as a nation and what to make of some of the issues that concern me the utmost. For readers, would you explain how you organized it? The first essay is October 2010, the last August 25th, 2021. But the, yes. the essays in between are not chronological. So how did you structure it all? Right. They're, they're separated into four different sections. Soldiers, right? Uh, essays primarily concerned with with military policy and experiences of, of soldiers overseas and the things that bind people together um, when they serve. Essays about citizenship, right? That other piece that I already talked about of kind of coming home and thinking very deeply to yourself, okay, what was I supposed to be fighting for, right? What does this commitment that I swore to my nation mean? And what does it mean when, when I'm not in conflict, right? What does it mean about my responsibilities to American civic life, right? And, 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 uh, and how should I think about those in relationship to being part of a nation that has a, a really extensive military presence overseas? Then uh, there's a section on art, right, which sounds very kind of highfalutin. I'm a, I'm a writer. I'm a fiction writer. Um, and I think about, you know, great literature. But it's actually much more basic than anything sort of um, uh, uh, so high culture. Really, the question that is concerning me in that section is about depictions of war and conversations about war, really just how do you talk about this, right? When you come home, you've been a part of an experience that feels really important, but it's difficult to communicate. It's not like everyday experience, and you might not have a great understanding of what you've been through yourself. You might still be trying to to parse it out and, and, and make sense of, of, you know, some of the things that happened to you or that you did or that people around you did. And communication is very important for that. And the past centuries of war literature offer some tools and ways of thinking about it. And I also situate that within American political debates as well. And then the final section is faith. Um, and I think that service in war brings to mind not simply moral and political questions, but spiritual ones as well. And that is the section that delves most deeply into those I think, very intimate and personal questions. One more question about writing. You, you are not only a fiction writer, but you teach fiction writing at Fairfield University. Your, one of your earlier books won the National Book Award for Fiction in 2014. So I'm wondering, as a writer, uh, having both formats available to you, fiction and nonfiction, when you choose 
to use one versus the other to convey themes which are really very similar. Yes. Well, you know, fiction, you're inviting someone into an experience from the inside, right? You're inviting them into situations that you want them to respond to with the full force of their creative imagination as well. And in essays, you're, it's not so dissimilar, but you're bringing them into a line of argument as well, right? And also, it's a way for me to work through things that have happened directly in my own life, right? So there's, in, in some of the more memoirist-type essays, um, there's a line of argument that I'm trying to bring the reader along with. Uh, as well as sort of excavating memories and ideas. Uh, you are a product of Jesuit education. Fairfield is a Jesuit college. Uh, yes, am I, rec- I am. Am I recognizing in your essay writing the Jesuit Socratic method of asking questions of your readers? Yes, yes, absolutely. And, and, and discernment and emphasis on the particularity of things, right? I think there are these grand, grand cultural narratives of war, but I'm also always deeply interested in the very human experience, right? The ways in which... The individual experience is, is not going to neatly map onto those kind of broader mythologies around soldiers and combat. And also, you know, the other thing I should mention about Fairfield is in our um, MFA program, we provide assistance for veterans, and about a third of the program is veterans. So one of the, one of the wonderful things there is not just, you know, uh, the experience of teaching, but also encountering other students' stories and other veterans' stories as well. You and I are taping this conversation just before Memorial Day 2022. In one of your essays, you write that Memorial Day, this is a quote, is never a particularly happy day for you. And another one you wrote about visiting Arlington Cemetery over Memorial Day, calling it, quote, a holiday best suited for healing wounds from past wars. This Memorial Day, what's on your mind? What are you thinking about? I think about people that I knew that died. Um, first and foremost. And that's, I think, very common for veterans, that it, um, it becomes very specific as a holiday. And more than that, I think it's a time for me to think very seriously about what that sacrifice demands of us, right? There are a lot of ideals, um, that Americans say that we're about, ideals that lead idealistic young men and women to join the military. And I think that the course of American history is always a struggle to either bring us closer to those ideals or where we fall away from them. And so I think hopefully at the end of each Memorial Day, I come, come through it with a renewed sense of dedication to the purpose of engaging in that struggle. We're also, uh, unfortunately, talking on the heels of two mass shootings, Buffalo, New York, yes. and Uvalde, Texas. You have a rather long essay in the book about American uh, society and guns. It's titled A History of Violence. What are the things that you explored in that, and what do you want people to know about this country's relationship with guns? Right. So it began as a straightforward history of ballistics, right, of, of, of the development of more efficient and devastating ways of killing people. And I began with America's first convicted murderer who came on the Mayflower and whose weapon of choice was a gun. 
But of course, the gun that he used was a very rudimentary thing. I mean, you know, we're talking an almost prehistoric era of ballistics. And he, he shot and he struck his target. And if he hadn't, that guy probably would have gotten away because in order to, you know, to reload, it was this whole convoluted process and you'd have to, you know, charge the gun and shove in the, the, the bullet and charge the pan, all these other things. And, you know, we look at the present day, you know, the shootings that just happened. Um, you have unimaginable firepower compared to that. Not just in terms of, you know, the rate of fire, the, the Las Vegas shooter fired uh, over 1,100 rounds in 10 minutes, right? It would have taken John Billington, our first convicted murderer, something like six hours to, to, to fire that many bullets nonstop with the weapon that he had at the time. But also the, the bullets have greater wounding power, right? They, um, they cause more damage to human tissue than, than the sort of more rudimentary uh, projectiles at the time because they go very fast and they can create a kind of a temporary cavity, they call it, a wake in the human body. And I, I go through the development of understanding of precisely how we wound human flesh with modern military armaments so devastatingly. And it's interesting in that piece, I quote a 1962 report on wound ballistics uh, commissioned by the Army and the Surgeon General of the Army notes the importance of studying this because medical practitioners are not going to encounter these wounds in, in peacetime. Well, that's not necessarily the case after one of these shootings, right? We have precisely these devastating kinds of injuries in peacetime. But as I was working on the piece, the other thing that seemed important to understand in terms of understanding where we are now is the development not of the, the hardware of the gun itself, but of the way that it's marketed. Because despite our kind of mythologies about the, the prevalence of guns and the gun culture of early American times, there wasn't a huge civilian market at the time. And this was a big problem for gun manufacturers like Samuel Colt. They relied on government contracts in the boom and bust of wars. And they knew that they needed to grow a civilian market. Colt once sold 10,000 guns to Texas, and that saturated the Texas market, right? Which is sort of crazy to think about now because, you know, there are plenty of Texas towns with more than 10,000 guns. And one of the things that he did was not just invent new types of firearms, but he invented new types of marketing for firearms. And he was brilliant at it. He was a, he was a showman. He had previously performed as Dr. Samuel Colt of London, Calcutta, and New York, uh, and sort of gave laughing gas to people and did these sort of carnivalesque shows in his earlier life. And he took that flair to advertising and building up a mythology of guns. He did something called predicament advertising where you, you know, hired artists and uh, to sort of show uh, somebody under threat and they're using a gun to fend it off and, and create the idea that, you know, a gun was how you secured your passage through this dangerous world. Uh, and it was a sort of necessary thing for traveling in, 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 in any kind of dangerous community. And of course, amping up the threat of that. And then after the Civil War, uh, as other gun manufacturers like Winchester are really catching on to this, that particular type of mythology starts getting tied very closely to American ideals. You know, one of the slogans is Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves, but Samuel Colt made all men free. And so, you know, this is instead of James Madison's all government rests on opinion, right? This is the idea that your security, uh, not just your security, but your quality, right? Uh, sort of fundamental aspects of who you are as American are dependent on on having this, you know, deadly weapon. And that sort of advertising kind of continues through, and I trace it through 
<clears throat> to the present day with the types of, of weaponry that we have now and the ways that uh, that mythology has sort of grown and also changed. Um, gun manufacturers had a good time during the crime wave of the 80s and 90s, but as crime went off, uh, and sort of advertisements about the fear of crime and and, and how you need a, a gun to fend off a rapist uh, were no longer driving sales the way that they were. The war on terror kind of helped them, right? Fears of an unstable world have always been good for gun manufacturers. And then the, Barack, and then the presidency of Barack Obama causes this huge boom in firearms. They called it the Barack boom. And you have advertisements that are dealing with fears of terrorism and 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 immigration and and warning that latin american ga- gangs have invaded every city and sort of thriving on this sense that it's a chaotic world it's an uncertain world but the gun is going to be the way that you sec- secure yourself your family who you are and um uh, and your liberty and you know last year we had almost i think 20 million gun sales in this country This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The Barack, as you call it, boom, was also predicated on the thought that there would be gun restrictions, sales yes, restrictions. Yes, absolutely. So people absolutely. were concerned that guns would be taken away from them. Yes, absolutely. So in a country with more guns than there are citizens right now, uh, in the wake of these two events, what are the questions you think that this society should be asking itself? I think it should be asking itself about the need for these weapons, right? And the social costs of having so many weapons, right? It's it's clear that, that you know, the level of gun violence in America is not at all comparable to other similar societies. And the main different ingredient is the prevalence of guns. So uh, more deeply in the essays, which overall, as you say, explore the responsibilities of American citizenship vis-a-vis the use of our military power. So you referenced in, in the outset of our conversation that a more American warfighting changed over the past 20 years. Can you explain how it changed and why? Sure. So when I was in Iraq, I was part of a large deployment of U.S. troops. It was the surge. It was hotly debated. The main effort of the American military effort was done with conventional troops. And those conventional troops often had um, <coughs> embedded journalists with them. <coughs> and it was not necessarily a golden age of transparency about military operations, um, but there was certainly a lot more than there is today. What ended up happening, though, so we had another surge of troops in, in Afghanistan under, under President Barack Obama. Uh, and then he pulled troops out of Iraq, but then started getting drawn back into the country. And, and America has always had, has for a while, had a kind of schizophrenic mood about the wars that we're engaged in. They don't like our deployments of troops overseas. They don't like the long-running wars. But when, you know, bad guys pop up, they really want us to be able to strike them. And when ISIS uh, emerged in, in, in Iraq, President Obama started reintroducing uh, troops, right? And for a while, they were very cagey about it. They would say, we're not sending boots on the ground because they were just spending sort of, you know, special operators. And they say, oh, they're doing advising and assisting missions. And 
but we're not sending troops into combat. And then they'd end up in combat. And then they say, yes, well, we're not sending troops into combat, but they sometimes end up in combat. They're in a combat situation. And the Obama administration did not feel when they decided to engage in the war against ISIS that they needed to go to Congress. And they argued that we could still use the authorization for the use of military force that was passed in 2001. And they also were using that same authorization to strike a variety of other groups. Just earlier this month, President Joe Biden signed an order sending troops into Somalia. And they're going to be doing uh, a sort of part of an ongoing uh, campaign of killing uh, leaders of al-Shabaab, a terrorist group. Well, that's been going on for a long time, and we didn't vote on Congress didn't vote on that either. Why? Because we're using the same authorization for the use of military force from 2001 that uh, was really intended to go after uh, the Taliban and Al Qaeda and, and folks in Afghanistan. And so we have this sort of sprawling justification for the use of military force that presidents can avail themselves of. And while if they were doing large ground deployments, there would probably be a, a decent amount of political debate. Instead, they're relying very heavily on special operations forces, on drones, on airstrikes, and, and on mercenaries, um, and working through proxy forces uh, to create very lethal effects on the ground. And so it's a style of warfare which is um, happens isn't very transparent where there isn't a lot of congressional accountability. And, and also it is a style of warfare where we have very limited engagement with a lot of the countries where our primary sort of interaction with the people of those countries is when we come from the skies and kill somebody. And I think that long-term that's a problem. I think it's a problem in terms of democratic accountability. And I also think that it's not good for the long-term for military policy either. So to clarify, uh, do you you see uh, ISIS and its affiliates as a threat to the United States? Is your is your concern really over communication to the public and buy-in from the public rather than identifying them uh, as a threat or not? So some of these missions I agree with. Some of them I'm much more skeptical of, right? Is al-Shabaab uh, in Somalia a direct threat to the United States? That's a much more debatable prospect, right? Um, so, you know, I, I think it's a good thing uh, that we helped fight against ISIS, right? I mean, I've, I've in, and I read about it in the book, I've traveled through some of the regions that were devastated by them in Iraq. I've, I've, I've been through Sinjar and talked to people who survived the genocide, and I've talked to women who were held as slaves by ISIS fighters. I'm very glad um, that we helped in that fight. Nevertheless, I do think that we need democratic accountability for war making, and I think that it is a very dangerous drift that we're in right now. I also just find it deeply troubling to have a situation, you know, when, when President Biden announced that we were pulling troops out of Afghanistan, he announced that the war was over, and then in the next breath said, you know, but we're going to continue fighting terrorism using over the horizon counterstrikes, uh, <clears throat> over the horizon strikes. And so, you know, the war's over, but the killing continues. And I think that. If we're going to be killing people, we shouldn't be telling ourselves that we're not at war. And it should be something that we are engaged in politically. War, the act of, of using our military to kill people, is the most morally fraught thing we can do as a country. And I think we all should 
participated and debated. I think that if we're going to have troops doing that overseas, I think that the president should have to, on a regular basis, come before Congress, explain what they're doing, explain what the mission is, explain what it's going to cost, explain what the benchmarks of success are going to be so that we can hold them accountable. And then I think every member of Congress should vote on it. And I don't see why we can't have that. So you've explained what we should be asking of our presidents. You actually write in the book that they've become accustomed to lying casually about war. It's a privilege Americans have granted the executive branch. So let me focus on the other half of that sentence that Americans have granted. What are our responsibilities as citizens? I think we should not simply um, accept this state of affairs. I don't think... That I think that we should demand more from our elected leaders. Um, I think it should be deeply troubling to all of us that the, the Department of Defense hasn't allowed journalists to embed with troops for a long time. I think that the, the level of, of secrecy and the lack of democratic accountability um, is something that, that politicians should be punished for if they don't take action on. And I think those politicians who are working to create more transparency and to create more de- democratic accountability, and there are folks for whom this is this is a concern uh, on both sides of the aisle, right, Republicans and Democrats, I think that those those folks deserve praise. And what should we be asking of the news media? <laughs> um, I mean, thoughtful informed coverage. I think that there's been some really fantastic journalism uh, over the past 20 years, and there's some just absolutely su- superb reporting. So so more of that. And um, uh, yeah. Do you think that the interest uh, or the resources devoted to coverage diminished when active troop movements moved uh, into counterinsurgency? I mean, you referenced yes. some of the journalists that you worked with while you were over there and the extensive reporting. But but once the big troop movements moved, did the reporting really diminish as well? There was diminishing in in reporting and, and the American people are less interested in the story, especially when it's not a subject of political debate. Right. If if. Uh, if it's not being actively debated, then it sort of passes out of our consciousness because there's so many other things in American life to be to be discussed and argued about. At the same time, you know, there's been some really phenomenal reporting. Uh, the New York Times, Smith Khan at the New York Times has uh, led a team winning a Pulitzer Prize where they were analyzing U.S. airstrikes and civilian casualties and the military's reports about those civilian civilian casualties and finding a lack of accountability, a lack of sort of um, responding to problems that led to civilians being killed as a way of preventing that from happening in the future, and also finding that the numbers of the dead were were significantly higher than the military was telling itself. And I think that's extremely valuable part uh, reporting. And it's not just valuable, you know, because this is morally important. Um, but I mean, it's very dangerous if we, as as a military, as a if one of our branches of government is lying about is lying to itself about what it's doing, right? It makes us less effective uh, as a force in the world. So we're in a congressional election here. What would you like to see happen as a result of the issues you raise? <laughs> I mean, all of the all of the things that, that I just mentioned, I'd like to see those as, um, uh, as things that American voters are concerned about and that they are asking their elected representatives to to represent them on that behalf and and, and to step up and actually take accountability for the American wars um, that are being waged right now. 
Let's go a little bit more into detail of your own story so people understand the perspective. You graduated from Dartmouth and joined the Marine Corps in 2005. How many members of your class also joined the military that year? Do you know? Uh, there were two other Marines, and I'm not sure the total number of military all told. You write that your friends and family were surprised by your decision. Why did you sign up? Well, you know, I, I was never the kind of kid who wanted to join the military. When I was in high school, I wanted to join the State Department. Uh, I wanted to be like my maternal grandfather, who was a career diplomat. But we were at war when I was in college. I, I went to college in September of 2001. Soon we were in Afghanistan, and then pretty soon enough we were going to be in Iraq. And so, you know, if I believed in public service and wanted to serve the country, that was the way to do it, it seemed. Since only 1% of the population has served in the past 20 years, what do you think the greatest misperceptions are on the part of the public between those who choose to serve and those who don't? Sure. I think that, you know, some veterans will complain about a kind of dichotomy in terms of how veterans perceive there's either the kind of sort of the broken soldier or the hero, right? Um, whereas you know, the sense of, you know, being in the military as doing a job, right? And, um, and performing as a professional, maybe, um, and, and the complex array of things that one can do in the military maybe is lost sight of. You know, there is an essay in the book that talks about perceptions of veterans as broken in some way. I've, I've encountered this, um, you know, and there, in some ways it emerged out of a, more po uh, of a positive thing, which was sort of more understanding of, of issues around mental health and war. That are very important to, to to talk about, but I started encountering this thing where people would assume uh, not that I had, you know, the symptoms of PTSD, right? Uh, not that I had a very particular uh, psychological wound, right? Which is a wound, like a physical injury is a wound, but rather a more kind of general sense that I was just kind of messed up, right? And one person told me at a bar that uh, all Iraq vets were going to snap after 10 years, you know, and I, I'd been home three at that point. So I had seven left, you know, so I guess I, I was supposed to enjoy them. And there was a way in which the discussion could sometimes be used to sort of paper over some of the more difficult things. Right. And it was sort of like, I get this sense, like, you know, are you angry? Are you bitter? Are you feeling betrayed? Are you pissed off? Like uh, in relationship to your service of war, well, maybe you have PTSD and hopefully one day there'll be a pill for that. Right. Whereas, you know, at the time uh, that I was writing that particular essay, which was during the rise of, of, of ISIS in, in, in the towns and villages uh, that I'd spent uh, my deployment, you know, I sort of had this sense of like, you know, are you not pissed off and feeling embittered and angry and, 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 and betrayed, you know, when you survey American military policy and how we've used the lives of men and women and how we've failed the people of Iraq? Like, you know, well, if you're not... Maybe there's something wrong with you, and maybe one day there will be a pill that will, you know, deal with that. And so that 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 kind of uh, dichotomy was there. The other thing, you know, that I think is important to have is there's sort of misapprehensions <laughs> that civilians have about veterans. But there's also – it can go the other way around too, right? There's, there's a way in which the veteran coming back from war can have this sort of – almost kind of chip on their shoulder, right? So it's very common to feel a certain sense of alienation and also a frustration with a civilian society that is not engaging these issues in the way that you are. And I thought about that very deeply um, in the years after I got back because I certainly felt it. I felt it when I was overseas. You know, one of the things that um, – 
uh, Marines used to say was, you know, we're at war and America's at the mall, right? Which was a kind of way of putting down civilians. You know, we're doing the important stuff and America's at the mall. And I was thinking about that a couple of years later because I was, you know, at the mall while America was still at war. And I was, you know, looking at onesies and trying to figure out the difference between 6M and 3 to 6M onesies. And I thought to myself, okay, you know, America's at war. I'm at the mall. And yet this is where I'm supposed to be. I'm getting baby clothes, right, for my son. And the contempt that I felt for a certain degree of civilian life, and in a way it's kind of crazy because the whole point of joining the military is you because you think that this civic, normal, quotidian civilian life is worth defending, that it's deeply important, right? It's not just worthless consumerism, but that there's something really, really beautiful here and that um, we should deeply, deeply respect and appreciate the work of, of, of everyday Americans going about their lives, building families, building communities, and also responding in their own way to um, the pressures and demands and obligations of, of American civic life. And so, you know, that's another piece of the puzzle in terms of, you know, sometimes the gulf between citizen and soldier. In a section in the in the collection on faith, uh, you reference that that time-worn phrase, there are no atheists in foxholes. Um, yeah. But in fact, you write about how being in war made you question a lot about your faith and about the concept of God. Could you share some of that with me? Sure. Yeah, it's, um, I mean... On the one hand, it's it's certainly not true, right? There are atheists in foxholes, and there are some people who are atheists because of what they experience in foxholes. It's more, you know, I, I quote a Vietnam veteran who says, it's that war can sometimes force a moment of choosing, right? Because the stakes are existential, and you, you think, I have to believe in a God who got me through that, or I cannot believe in a God who, you know, would allow such things to happen. And so... For me, when I was in Iraq, it was a little bit different, though, because in some ways, my deployment was was relatively easy, right? I was in a violent place, but I wasn't experiencing violence myself. I was mostly safe. I saw the after effects of violence, particularly in, in the surgical uh, uh, platoon that was a, uh, a part of our unit. But... By the end of my deployment, I felt very good about what we'd done because violence had gone down in Ambar province. So I felt very justified. I felt very smug. And, and it was actually that that sort of caused me um, to walk away from faith for a while. Uh, and then as I started writing about the wars and undermining that, that, that sort of smugness that I felt, right, and asking myself a lot more difficult, compl- complicated questions about that experience and what it meant, I started to rely more on... Um, the resources that had been been offered me during during my Jesuit education, right? For asking, I think the deepest and sometimes the most difficult questions that can be asked, and and so the essays in that section are are, are trying to, you know, <laughs> explore the difference between that that smug and certain kid who thought that there was no role for faith in his life, and the, the somewhat older and much more full of doubt and skepticism. Uh, person for whom uh, a sense of faith and mystery and beauty and a complex relationship to suffering became deeply, deeply important. 
In that section, we meet someone named Chaps McLaughlin. Yeah. Why is his story illustrative? Yeah. Chaps was somebody who was not feeling smug at the time. Wonderful man. He was the chaplain of my unit. And as I mentioned, we had a surgical shock trauma platoon. And so they'd receive casualties coming in from the battlefield. You know, U.S. Marines, also sometimes enemy fighters and civilians. And when you have a mass casualty event, military triage goes into effect and it's a kind of cold process, right? If you can't help someone, you give whatever you can to make them comfortable and you move on to somebody that you can help, right? You don't want to just leave anybody to die alone in a corner and especially not a child. And Chaps McLaughlin took upon himself to minister to children as they were dying. And eventually the engineers built him rocking chairs, combat rocking chairs, they called him. And he would hold children as they died. And it was only later that I learned some of the sort of spiritual reflections that he was writing in his notebook at the time. And the questions this this called to mind about being a member of a military force in a war that's taking place in people's cities and homes, which of course means children living in fear, children hurt, children dying. And yeah, he's, it's, it's his, his experience and, and, um, and what he did with it continues to, to move me profoundly. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about presidents because, uh, as you suggested, since the uh, 9-11, Congress has really ceded authority to the president through the authorized use of military force. Uh, And I I wanted to go through the recent presidents and have you talk a little bit about, I know it's early, but how you think they might be viewed through the lens of history. Let me start with, with George W. Bush. Most recently, of course, lots of coverage of what's described as a gaffe he made uh, on May May 18th, uh, when he was talking, intending to talk about Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Very brief. Let's listen. The decision of one man to launch a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. I mean, of Ukraine. (laughs) Iraq, too. Anyway. uh, (laughs) 75. Uh, Phil Clay, he was responding initially to 9-11. Uh, so in, with the lens of history now of 20 years, how do you think his decisions about where we deployed military force will be viewed? I think it's very clear that <clears throat> the military decisions made were disastrous. The planning was poor. The execution um, was poor. They didn't listen to a lot of the folks who were warning about precisely some of the things that happened. Um, I think that the use of torture is a moral stain of grave consequence. It's one that hurt us practically. It inspired um, inspired enemies around the world. It limited our intelligence sharing and, and cooperation with other, other nations at a very critical time. And um, And it was stupid, cruel, and evil in every way. You've already spoken about Barack Obama. I don't have a clip from him, but is there anything more you want to say about the way he addressed these foreign policy concerns, these security concerns while he was in office? Well, I think it's it's under the Obama administration that we really begin shifting towards a much less transparent 
style of warfare, that war, style of warfare that I was uh, I was talking to and away from the larger troop deployments. And also it's a time when, when the executive is very aggressively arguing for an expanded scope of its, of its powers and, and, and its use of, of kill capture, right? Targeted killing around the world. And I think that that is a significant part of his legacy. And I think that it is a troubled aspect of his legacy. Donald Trump, uh, you had an opportunity when he was running for president actually to question him the way you say citizens should do of their their uh, political candidates. Let's listen to that and uh, you can tell me what you thought of his response. Assuming we do defeat ISIS, what next? What is your plan for the region to ensure that a group like them doesn't just come back? Joe, I mean, part of the problem that we've had is we go in, we defeat somebody, and then we don't know what we're doing after that. I mean, we lose it. Like, as an example, you look at Iraq, what happened, how badly that was handled. And then when President Obama took over, likewise, it was a disaster. It was actually somewhat stable. I don't think it could ever be very stable. It's a war we should have never gone into in the first place. But he came in, he said, when we go out, and he took everybody out. And really, ISIS was formed. And I think you know, and because you've been watching me, I think, for a long time, I've always said, shouldn't be there, but if we're going to get out, take the oil. If we would have taken the oil, you wouldn't have ISIS, because ISIS formed with the power and the wealth of that oil. So, Phil Clay, not so much just what you thought of his answer, but how about policy under his administration when he campaigned, really, to end involvement there? I mean, take the oil is a ridiculous response. It's hard, I mean, it's hard to even respond um, how would you take the oil? Would it be like taking money out of an ATM? Um, what would that mean? Uh, I don't think he thought it through. Uh, it's kind of difficult to to even go through all that's that's wrong with that. It just it just suggests somebody who hadn't thought very deeply about the question, right? And and so in many ways, the Trump presidency, as you might expect from somebody who would give an answer like that, kind of continued in a similar trajectory as the Obama presidency, right? There 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 is a lot more continuum than people think. I mean, the, the differences are there is even less transparency. And also Donald Trump uh, expanded the scope of special operations even beyond what Obama had done, right? A former uh, commander of, of special operations command described the pace uh, as frantic during the, the Trump years. And also he loosened restrictions uh, around uh, targeted killing and airstrikes. Uh, and that resulted in a lot of a lot more dead civilians. Um, so uh, that would be, you know, and 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 also there was a certain amount of just kind of erratic foreign policy, such as when you know he sort of ordered troops out of Syria, and then some troops ended up staying, and some troops left. You know, as, as I uh, mentioned, I, I met some of the refugees uh, who had to flee Syria in the wake of the ethnic cleansing um, for, by Turkish-backed militias who moved in after. Uh, some of our troops left. And and so it was somewhat erratic at times, but in many ways, uh, a sort of more callous and, 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 and cool, uh, but uh, continuum of the Obama years. Under President Joe Biden, official end of uh, military presence in Iraq mm-hmm. in December 2021. And then, of course, in August of uh, last year, the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Your thoughts on those? Sure. I mean, I supported the, the, the withdrawal from Afghanistan. I think it made sense. Um, you know, there's some people who believe like, oh, you know, if we had kept a troop presence there, uh, the Afghan government could have hauled out. I mean, what 
how many troops would we have had to put in, right? Not 2,500 because it wasn't a stable equilibrium at the time that we left. So you're talking about, you know, substantially increasing the troop presence there to, to do what? Um, you know, there was an Afghan government that was dysfunctional that you could have poured infinite resources into and it never would have uh, been self-sustaining because, and I know that because it's basically what we did. And so I think that it did make sense to leave. Now, there are questions about how that was conducted, and I think particularly among um, folks in my community, there was a great amount of upset with the lack of concern for Afghans who worked with American forces um, and their families, people who were stuck in Kabul and trying to get out. Uh, the Biden administration did not adequately prepare to evacuate those people, to get those people through our extremely broken immigration system. And so there was a tremendous crisis uh, when, you know, the Taliban started taking cities that were utterly unprepared for, even though, you know, folks that I know in, in the humanitarian community had been desperately arguing for preparation for precisely this for months. You know, I met met people complaining about getting a deaf ear from, from the Biden administration in April, right, uh, in May. And so there was a really kind of devastating human toll and a human toll paid by people who had trusted America, who believed in our promises to them. Um, you know, I, I remember talking to one veteran who was frantically trying to, to do this work. And he said, you know, my interpreter saved my life. And this interpreter had family over there. He said, why would I ever stop doing everything that I can to try and help him? You know, our, I feel like our government failed in its obligation and that obligation has been put on me. But, you know, he's just a private citizen. There's only so much he can do. And so a lot of those folks were desperately trying everything they could do and, you know, failing in a lot of cases. I know people who were working with someone and then they'd find out that that person had been murdered. Um, and it's very, very brutal work. And that work continues, by the way. Um, and so that was, I think, a, a tremendous flaw um, in, in the withdrawal. But the withdrawal itself, I did support. We have just a little less than 15 minutes left in our hour together. I, I wonder what you think about the Biden administration and the Congress's support for our efforts, the West's efforts in Ukraine. I mean, I think it's, a, it's, it's good. It's a, it's a you know, straightforward war of aggression. Um, and I think it is, it is a good standard to set that wars of aggression are bad things that will rouse the international community to support the victim. Um, there are prudential concerns, right? We don't want this to escalate in, in dangerous ways. But I think it is a very good thing that we're supporting Ukraine. Now, that doesn't mean that there are things that we shouldn't be thinking about now. Um, uh, because in, in some ways, the decision to, to hope that Ukraine is able to defend itself from aggression, that's, 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 that's easy, right? And, and our willingness to, to aid them, Um within certain prudential concerns is in some ways it's a, it's a relatively easy um, moral position. But we should also be thinking on the one hand about what can happen down the line. Uh, a friend of mine who's a, a researcher uh, and former, uh, former service member uh, who tracks weapons said, you know, if history is any indication, I'll be tracking the weapons that we're giving to Ukraine to other conflicts that we haven't thought about now. Um, I think we should be thinking also about the international order, right? I mean, you played that clip from George W. Bush. The invasion of Iraq and the invasion of Ukraine are not the same thing. But nevertheless, the prohibition against 
wars of aggression is a very, very important one that we weaken in the international community at our peril. And I think we need to think very seriously about the types of international norms that we would like to see around the world and the kind of institutions that we need to support in order to make those realized. And I think that we need to think about ways in which we ought restrain ourselves because any, you know, you can't, um, you can't advocate strong norms in terms of how uh, the international community operates but reserve certain carve-outs for yourself. Does it apply equally to the president's announcement that we would support Taiwan militarily? I... <laughs> I think... We, we certainly would like China to not feel as if it had um, the ability to go into Taiwan. We certainly want them to think that it would be um, a very dangerous and painful course of action for them. I think there are there's sort of other kind of uh, broader concerns about that policy and, um, and whether it was wise to say so directly. But, um, you know, certainly one of the hopes as you're looking at Ukraine is that other countries will um, consider restraining themselves. Let me uh, use our last 10 minutes or so together to learn more about your community, as you call them, the community of veterans, especially of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. Uh, you referenced this earlier, but I, I noted this quote, in some ways, joining the military is an act of faith in one's country, an act of faith that the country will use your life well. In, in the introduction, you referenced the January 6th attack on the Capitol and the number of veterans that were involved in that. At the same time, in another essay, you observe that your fellow veterans are not nihilists. They volunteer more, they vote more, they join more civic yeah. groups. So those two things seem to conflict with me. What's the state, I, I guess, if you can generalize about it, of, of veterans of your era today? I mean, it's, it's an incredibly, you know, complex and diverse group, right? It's as, it's as diverse as America, and that's a, you know, that's a good thing in many ways. I think that... Um, I think there is a sense of that same that same idealism that drove you to join in the first place does continue in people and look for outlets in, in American civic life. And I also think, you know, I was talking about the evacuation. A lot of the folks that I knew who were involved in that were, were veterans. And some of them in the month of August were feeling unbelievably bleak, right? And, and truly angry at America, right? Because because there were people that, that they felt had really put themselves out for them and for America, whose, whose lives were being ruined uh, without a second thought. And so, you know, I quote some of the people in, in the last essay in the book, which is about uh, the last, the fall of Kabul, who were extremely angry. And yet I spoke to one of those guys a couple months later and, you know, he said he'd been working on resettlement for Afghan refugees. And a lot of the people in his community had come out and people with no connection to Afghanistan whatsoever, no connection to the military. And he said, you know, I realized I'd always thought that Americans didn't care. But one of the things was that if you ask people, they do step up, right? Americans do step up. And so part of the problem he felt was just that for, for a long time, when it comes to our wars, we haven't asked anything of, of Americans. And and so I think that there's that sensibility, that, that 
that desire to be part of a, a shared project, not, not with everybody, um, but I do think that that is one thing that you often find in the veteran community. And I think it's extremely gratifying to people when they find it, um, you know, when they find those places in, in American civic life um, where they do fit in, where they do find that sense of common purpose with their fellow Americans. So, And there are many options for that. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. What are some of the solutions that you think would be effective? I mean, what I've heard you describe is a real chasm between the United States citizens and our foreign policy efforts, especially the use of the military, also a disconnect in society between Americans and those who serve. So what are some of the mechanisms to address those gulfs? Sure. You know, I think that it's very easy when you look at the sum total of all the problems in life uh, to become very uh, discouraged and despairing. And yet, and yet we know that progress is possible. We know that changes do come. And whatever area of military policy or veteran life concerns you, there are organizations out there that are making genuine differences, whether it's, you know, working resettling Afghans, right, like my friend, um, whether it's being more involved in the kinds of policy, policy debates about the sorts of issues that I'm talking about, um, or, uh, you know, the, the kind of concerns about transparency, about the authorization for the use of military force. I also would say that I feel like even if somebody <laughs> is not interested in wars, right? I, if they're deeply engaged in American civic life and our political life and in an attempt to sort of bring those values and virtues of American life more fully into realization, I feel like that's the same project, right? And uh, one thing I will say is that at the end of the day, despite, despite everything, I'm grateful that I served in the military. And I do think that there's something deeply ennobling about service to the nation. I do wish that there were more avenues for young people to pursue national service, not just in the military, um, but more broadly, because I think that would be a good thing for the country. Some countries have a required year of national service. Is yeah. that something you think you would support or would ever fly here? You know, I don't think you could start it off right at once, but I do think that you could start by expanding opportunities for young people to, to serve. Do you think serving in the military should be a requirement? You know, I understand why some people long for that and feel like it would lead to more engagement with these sorts of questions. I ultimately don't think it makes sense. Um, I don't think we know. I don't think we would know what to do with all those folks. I think that if we had mandatory national service, but uh, service in a, a sort of wider variety of of, of types of things that, that you could do that would probably be better. You know, not everybody belongs in the military, and I'm sure uh, most uh, first sergeants would agree with me. <laughs> you um, talk about a way forward being to engage in more thoughtful policy debates, but you have a, a chapter, a section in your book on rage, and yeah. it seems that our national politics right now are filled with that. So uh, I guess the question is, how do we get beyond the rage to a, a civil debate? Yeah, I mean, for me, the debate can be raucous, right? But I think there's a danger when you become utterly blind to to your opponents. And it's not because, it's not even because they might be right. They might be terribly wrong. Um, but I think that you, it's important to learn what is motivating other people, how they're arguing, Um and how you might sharpen your own side in response. I think that um, 
you know, sometimes we talk about sort of and uh, civility. I mean, on the one hand, I do think it's just a virtue. I think that it is a good thing to be civil to your fellow citizen, just as a as a as a, as a baseline, right? Um, I think that it's dangerous to get so caught up in self righteous rage that you're unable to see your own blind spots. I just think that. Uh, a commitment to civility, in addition to being a virtue in its own right, it tends to make us smarter about the things that we argue. It tends to make us be uh, more aware of the things that we might have missed initially and the ways in which we can improve ourselves and also the ways in which we can more effectively reach out to our fellow Americans and persuade them. So I guess last questions for you. You're, you're not quite 40 years old, I think, and you've also become, <laughs> become a dad. You're raising two children in our society. Three. Three, Three children. children. Congratulations. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> uh, wondering, um, really, it's a big question about faith in our future. Uh, yeah. When you survey the United States right now uh, and your participation and your, those of your age group and your kids growing up in it, how do you feel about the direction of our country and our ability to surmount these challenges? You know, I always say like I'm a short-term pessimist and a long-term optimist. I think that we have to have a very cold and, and sober look at the present reality um, and feel extremely um, exercised about the flaws. But I, at the end of the day, I do have faith um, in the American people. And I think one of the things, you know, I keep going back through history in this book. And when you do, you do find, you know, a lot of the the sins of American life, but you also find uh, the people who have over time successfully improved us, brought us closer to who we should be. And so it's, it's very clear that that's always possible. The book is titled Uncertain Ground, Citizenship in an Age of Endless and Invisible War. As you're out speaking about it now, right after publication, what will make you realize whether or not the book's made a difference? <laughs> I, I mean, at the end of the day, I just want to know from individual readers that it moved them, that it caused them to deeply reflect, um, to think about wars and American citizenship more differently, that it echoed some of their concerns in their own life, whether it's, it's in civic life or in, in deeply personal things as well. That's, you know, uh, I don't, I don't ask any book to, to radically change the world. I don't think that's, that's possible. Um, but I, I do strongly believe that, that, um, that books can draw people into important conversations in, in deeply profound and intimate ways. I know that they've changed my life and the way that I think about things. And, and hopefully uh, it can just do a little bit of that for some of the readers. Phil Clay, thank you for a conversation with C-SPAN for the past hour. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org. Send me your questions, your comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome. 